Welcome to We Have This Hope. My name is Emily Curzon. This is a podcast about the study of scripture, the art of remembering, and the practice of telling. On the show, we'll explore the ways God calls his people to remember by studying scripture together, and we'll hear individual stories of hope anchored in the beautiful and ancient practice of remembering. I'm so glad you're here. Hey friends, this episode is special to me. They, they all are really. Every time I finish an interview, I spend the rest of that day and that week riding this high, sort of reveling in that person's unique and beautiful story. I love it. What's special about today is that my guest is someone who I have both admired from afar and someone whose own story and journey into grief resonates with me deeply on a personal level. And you're going to hear us talk a little bit about that. Today's guest is Amanda Held Opelt. She's an author, speaker, and songwriter. She writes about faith, grief, and creativity, and believes in the power of community, ritual, shared worship, and storytelling to heal even our deepest wounds. Amanda has spent 15 years serving in nonprofit and humanitarian aid sectors. She's written for Christianity Today, among other publications, and has authored two books, A Hole in the World, Finding Hope in Rituals of Grief and Healing, and her latest work, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Now, by the time this airs, I can say that I've read both of her books and they're excellent. They're truly excellent. I'm going to link them in the show notes. I'm going to link them in my posts, and you can order them wherever you buy your books. Amanda lives in the mountains of Boone, North Carolina, with her husband and two young daughters. Y'all, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. I told her in an email this week, it was wind in my sails, and I know it will be for you too. So, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Amanda Held Opelt. Amanda, welcome to We Have This Hope. I'm so glad you're here. It's a vulnerable thing to talk to someone that you don't know and to talk about your work in the world and to talk about your story. And it just... It requires an, like a level of vulnerability and authenticity that's hard. And it's hard when you're a busy mom and a working mom mm. and all those things. So thank you. I don't take <laughs> it lightly that you said yes. Well, I think you and I have just some, I don't know, overlapping mm. elements to our stories. And so I feel very comfortable. I'm very excited to have this yeah, conversation awesome. with you, honestly. On a walk this morning with one of my best friends, and she was, you know, like, "What are you doing today? What are you, you know?" I was telling her about your book that we're going to talk about today, "Holy Unhappiness." I've been reading it mm. and loving it, and I told her, "I hope this is mm. <laughs> kind of silly to say, but I was like, I really like Amanda. Like, I just that was one oh, of my takeaways so nice. from your book <laughs> is that I like you. <laughs> like, oh, well." The- well, I'll tell you why that's encouraging is because you what you want to do as best as you can is be fully present mm-hmm. in your pages as an author and like just be yourself, you know what I mean? And not feel like there's some kind of veneer of like author writing for reader. I hope my book feels like we're sitting down to a cup of coffee to some degree. And so if not, if, if the book has accomplished that for you, then that really makes me happy. And I'm so glad to hear it. Good. I meant it very much as a compliment. So... As an author and a speaker and a musician, too, I want to talk about that. Mm. Um, will you just tell for my listeners who maybe don't know you do life with regularly? Yeah, I am a, a, an author and a, a speaker and a songwriter. I live in rural Western North Carolina in the mountains of Appalachia, which has basically always been home for me. I grew up in East Tennessee on the other side of the state line, but uh, just living here in 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 the mountains. And I, I live with my husband. We've been married. I'm not sure if it's 13 or 14 years. To be honest, I asked him this morning and neither one of us were sure. Um, we've, <laughs> and we've got two. Uh-huh. two, two and um, 
yeah, I spent most of my life working in kind of the nonprofit and humanitarian aid sector, but I've switched to full-time writing and, and music in the last uh, few years because it allows me to be flexible a little bit and, and hang out with my daughters more. So I was, um, I sent you this question, but I was thinking about just kind of your bio, who you are, mm-hmm. where you're from. And I have almost no connection whatsoever to North Carolina, mm. to even the way you said it, App- Appalachia. I always say Appalachia. Like, am no, I that's, saying it That's wrong? how we know people aren't from here is if they say <laughs> Appalachia. <laughs> It's okay. When you said that, I was like, ooh, mental note. I'm saying it wrong. Um, Well, we were talking beforehand, and I was like, what's that other state near you, Nebraska? I mean, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's all where you live in the part of the country and how familiar you are. Yeah. So when you say you live in the mountains, I'm truly, this is going to sound like a silly question, but what is that like? Are you all Mm. truly rural? Are you neighborhood? Are you, like, do you have land and animals and... Do you go into yeah. the mountains with your... Yeah, I mean, the terrain up here is pretty, is can be pretty rough. Like, we, we live at 3,400 feet. So people from the Rocky mm-hmm. Mountains are going to say, like, oh, those aren't real mountains. You know, they're they're more like mm-hmm. hills and hollers. But um, we live near Boone, North Carolina, which is a, ma- a mountain a college town. So we have Appalachian State University, which kind of gives the area a little bit more of a... Um, urban is definitely not the right word, but we have more than one sushi <laughs> restaurant and we have Ooh. some shopping, like we have places to go shopping and things like that. But much of the Appalachian countryside across, you shouldn't have asked me this, Emily, because I could actually <laughs> talk about Appalachia for, for this whole hour if if you want. It's such no. an interesting part of the country with such an interesting history, economic history and cultural history. But many parts of Appalachia are really hard to reach because of the terrain and there aren't direct roads to get there. And so people live fairly isolated lives, which is why the culture has been so preserved and why there's so much economic hardship sometimes because it's hard mm-hmm. to get different types of industry in there. But but we live in an area where has it's seen a little bit more advantages because of that, that university. We live about um, 10, 10, 15 minutes north in a little community actually called Meat Camp, North Carolina, uh, named because Daniel Boone used to hunt in this area. If you're familiar with Daniel Boone, maybe yeah. he used to hunt in this area and they would store the meat that they had hunted in smoke houses in this just this little part of the county and so we've got about five acres of woodland and no well we we are beekeepers so my husband is a beekeeper and we've got a garden but no animals at this point I feel like my kids it's hard enough to keep them alive so I'm not really looking to get any goats (laughs) or chickens but we hope that's in our future how cool how did you all land there yeah well I'm, I'm kind of from the area and my grandmother's side of the family has lived right in this area since the 1700s and so there's a rich history for my family here I think that's why I feel it in my bones that I belong but mm-hmm. part of what brought us from Tennessee was that my husband did his graduate work at Appalachian State and so okay. uh, that's that's kind of how we got here and just fell in love with it fell in love with the beauty of the mountains there's so much here in the way of skiing and hiking and kayaking and mountain climbing and all that stuff it really is a beautiful part of the country if anybody wants to visit they can learn all about it on my Instagram I most I actually spend most of my Instagram posts talking about what how awesome this part of the country is that's that's why I asked you about it because I'm like I can tell that this is important to her and it's the photos are lovely truly lovely so now I'm going to go and Google how long the drive is from Tulsa to <laughs> where you Yeah, are. come. You're welcome to stay with me. For me, I think part of why I'm passionate about it is wherever you find yourself, I think it's important to connect with the story. I know memory and remembering is a huge part of this podcast. It's important to connect to the story of a land, of a place, of the people who've lived there. Because as autonomous as we pretend we are in this culture, we're not. We're part of a larger story. We're part of, mm-hmm. a, part of a larger communal identity, historical identity. And because that is familiar to me, because my family's rootedness and my family's history here, it just, I don't know, I think it's an, it's an important part of knowing who you are and where you belong so yeah well said I while you were talking I was thinking oh we experienced that a little bit this summer we we live in sort of midtown kind of suburban Tulsa Mm -hmm. but we had a tree fall on our house during a storm in June and we were uprooted and so we lived in downtown Tulsa Mm. in an apartment 
above my husband's office for the whole summer. And it was such a sweet time. Part of what made it sweet is that my kids and I, we walked all over and where downtown Tulsa is situated just north of here was historically a predominantly black community. And in 1921, we had, there was a, what's called the Tulsa race massacre. And that whole like 35 blocks of the city were burned. And so a few years back, we had the centennial and the city has done a lot to, to build reconciliation, Mm. but talking to my kids about that part of their city's history was really profound. I would get choked up trying to explain Mm. to my daughter, Ella, like why this mural is here and what it represents. Anyway, really profound stuff. Yeah. And, and you don't, yeah, until you kind of pay attention to where you are, sometimes you can miss those stories. And so I love that you had that opportunity and we're trying to tell those stories and hand those stories to our daughters as much as we can too. But yeah, I don't think I'll ever move. We love it here. I think you're going to bury me here. I don't know. But I actually am the heiress of a graveyard. My mom and my aunt own a piece of property not far from here that's been in the family since you know, it's like 200 years, there's a graveyard on it. And I don't know, what do you do when you become the caretaker of a graveyard with 100 year old graves in it? I'm not really sure we're figuring that out. But (laughs) I guess I'll be buried there. I don't know. But all that to say, this is home. This is where we where we're gonna live and die. And it matters to us, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think what you do when you become the heiress to a graveyard is you start working on your next book. (laughs) That sounds like like, there's probably a lot of stories in that graveyard. I know. I When I wrote my first book, A Hole in the World, about grief rituals, and then later learned that the graveyard was on the property line that I'd be inheriting, someone was like, that's so on brand for you, Amanda, to, <laughs> to inherit a graveyard. I was like, it really is. I don't I, I don't know what this is, what it's going to mean for us, but we're trying to prepare oh, for that. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I think that's so neat. So unique. Very cool. Okay, you mentioned a little bit about your professional work, about that you spent time in the nonprofit sector Mm -hmm. and humanitarian aid. Those are broad terms. So Mm -hmm. can you maybe share some examples of what that work was like? Sure. Yeah. Right after college, I spent some time working overseas in India with uh, living with Indian missionaries and was just really passionate about God's work around the world and the global church and also found that I wasn't the most efficient person maybe to be sharing the gospel with people whose language I didn't speak. And so I continued to support from afar, but thought, is there a way that I can plug in kind of in my home state and and serve in that capacity? And so I worked in Nashville and downtown Nashville, working with women who have, you know, were economically disadvantaged or been struggling with generational poverty. We did GED training and job skills training. And that's kind of how I was cut my teeth professionally and managing the volunteers that helped do that. Then when my husband uh, wanted to go to graduate school, there was a actually a humanitarian aid organization that's based here in Boone, North Carolina, that I applied for and began working at. And that really, that in many ways changed the trajectory and the story of my life. Didn't know that I would be doing it 10 years later, but it became a 10-year career for me. And mostly what I did was I'd kind of manage our staff care programming and help develop staff care strategies for uh, folks that lived and worked internationally serving in these disaster zones and war zones and helping them build skills for resilience and connecting them to clinical counseling, connecting them to resources they needed in order to sustain that that type of work. But that work took, kind of took me all over the world into some pretty hard places and witnessing some some pretty difficult things that I then had to learn how to absorb and process and integrate into my life. And so then when the opportunity to write full time came and just thought, you know what, it's when you got two little kids traveling to war zones for two weeks at a time is not really... <laughs> It's not really something you want to do when you're already sleep deprived. And so made a pretty significant shift to go from really team oriented work, outward facing work to the more inward solitary work of writing. And it's been kind of a hard transition, to be honest with you, but one that I think is right for the moment for me, but still uh, it can be hard sometimes. Um, But it's been a really sweet season, too, in many ways that um, that feels really right for me right now. It, it seems really fitting that you did this sort of outward work 
And you talk about it in the book. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at the chapter on work when you talk mm-hmm. about being in Darfur and working after the tsunami. And mm-hmm. you talk about that like on the ground work and then grappling with how that impacted your own mental health. The phrase compassion fatigue comes to mm-hmm. mind, but that's just scratching the surface, I'm yeah. sure. And then transition to work where then you were promoting that care for people mm-hmm. going out. I mean, that's a really cool thread line for how you experienced it and then were able to put that into practice. Yeah. And I, I think it it was interesting to have walked through, and I'm sure we'll touch on this as the conversation goes on, but to have born, to, to bear witness to the suffering of others, the profound personal losses that other people go through, whether that's loss of a home to natural disaster, loss of a community due to war, seeing people walk through traumatic events in the field, and, and then going through my own traumatic loss and kind of drawing from some of the lessons that I learned. When my moment of suffering came, I thought, oh, well, I'm well prepared because I've been, I've been in working in the realm of suffering my whole life. Like, this is what I do. I go to disasters. And so when the disaster befalls me, I'm going to be okay. And, you know, I quickly learned I was not. I quickly learned I was a novice at grief at loss and that's how the books that I've written really have been born is learning kind of the new language of lament learning this new skill set of grief and carrying grief and carrying loss and carrying hardship and suffering not just theoretically and not just vicariously I guess but also Mm -hmm. for myself personally yeah yeah absolutely prior to those things happening in your life And while you were doing this work, you said you transitioned to writing. Were you writing all along? How, how did that, you know, how does one go from traveling internationally and then working in nonprofit in their city to now I'm a writer? Yeah. How do you know? I mean, writers always got to write, right? Like, it's like, if you're really a writer, you're never not writing. And and because I think I've I've always used songwriting in particular to Mm. process my experiences to not tell the stories of others because I think that's a that's a sacred thing you you can't tell anyone else's story but kind of giving voice to some of my experiences and, and some of the things that I'd witnessed the strength I'd seen in people and and writing about that and writing about them I think helped me along the way but it was always kind of done in the margins of my time and so to then transition to focusing fully on it has yeah has been a journey yeah yeah You mentioned your first book, A Hole in the World, and in that book, you look at grief and rituals around grief, and you've already given us a little bit of hint into your having walked through traumatic loss, traumatic grief, Mm -hmm. and so because this is a podcast about remembering, Mm -hmm. because we share some commonalities, because we talk about grief here, I wondered, will you tell us a little bit about loss and grief in your life? Mm -hmm. What's that experience been like for you, and how did it lead you to that book? Yeah, I think my story of suffering really begins with a story of, frankly, privilege and what Mm. I would consider blessing. Like I just had such a, looking back, I had such a easy, in many ways, childhood and growing up experience, trauma-free, you know what I mean? Like well-adjusted parents, loving parents. I had grandparents who passed away, but it felt like death kind of in the right order, death at a time that you expect. And so... I don't know what I thought suffering would be like, but I, for me personally, when it happened, but I had a whole list of expectations that went unmet. So in my <laughs> mid thirties is when I kind of started walking through a season of a few significant losses back to back. The grandmother I was closest to who lived near me passed away quite suddenly while I was on a work trip. I was stuck in Congo, couldn't get out and come to the funeral. And then mm-hmm. I walked through a season of, of infertility, which ended up being three miscarriages and and just kind of that that hoping and losing and hoping and losing and the uncertainty of what the future would be would we ever be parents and not knowing that was really challenging and and then you know the the real atom bomb that went off in my life was when my only sibling my sister passed away very suddenly um, just became very ill from the flu and began experiencing seizures and after two and a half weeks she she died in the hospital and she left behind two young children and just to it was it was uh, just an utter 
catastrophe. And I don't really know how else to describe it. And it just rearranged our whole family dynamic and what that meant for me and my parents in the future. And so that was really what led me to write the book about grief rituals is because my, my, I always tell people, you know, our, how our phones know us better than we know ourselves. Sometimes my <laughs> phone, the algorithm knew I was grieving, I guess, because it sent up on my feed like an article about strange grief rituals from the past and I was like this is weird and I clicked on it and it was just like my mind blew wide open of all the things that people used to do to communally mark and remember their losses that we don't do anymore and so to studying those rituals I began journal you know I'm a writer I wasn't writing books at the time but I began began journaling and I thought, I wonder if anybody else would be interested in these creepy, strange, unusual superstitions about grieving, you know? And sure enough, they were. And I was able to find a publisher who wanted to publish it. And that's kind of what led to me writing full time. So thank you for telling that story, just sharing yeah. a little bit about it. You mentioned a little bit in Holy Unhappiness when you, in your chapter on suffering, you talk about your infertility journey, you talk about when your sister died and the way you talk about grief as someone who has also walked through a sudden loss and even weirdly more specifically losing a sibling, losing a sister, Mm -hmm. being the only child with Mm -hmm. parents who are grieving. And so just that the way you spoke about grief was so raw and real. It, Mm -hmm. It resonated so much. You talked about, I think you said like, it melted me away. Mm, I was just succumb to grief that the experience of it did not match any of my intellectual expectations of what Mm. it was like, but yet you do a beautiful job of talking about God's grief and God being with us in grief, even when grief is not good and not fun. Would Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I think I just thought, (laughs) I thought that if I had like a really structurally sound theology of suffering, that when I lost someone or something important to me, yeah, I would feel sad. Yeah, I would feel grief. But like somehow my good theology and my rigorous commitment to the spiritual disciplines would like buoy me up out of the pain, out of the torment of it, you know? And it just didn't. Just to be completely frank, like grief was still so awful, like you just said, like you've experienced Emily. And so then, you know, that leads you to think like, okay, I thought I was going to find the silver lining here. I thought that the redemptive story arc would present itself immediately. I thought I would pray and the peace that passes understanding. I mean, I had people all over the world praying for me. I was like, what's not working? Why is this not working? Why am I still in so much pain? And I think it was just me realizing that God or theology or our goodness, our righteousness as a human, our right beliefs don't always fix the problem of pain. It doesn't always mean that our discomfort is going to be alleviated. And so then I have to ask myself, well, what is it? What does it do for me then? Because I, I began to say, like, is God even real? Like, is God absent? Does God just not care? And it, I've come to believe that God is real. God does still care. But it's just pain is part of the experience of being human. And what God does with us is be present with us in the pain and fortify us to carry this very heavy burden. I just have come to believe that God doesn't always take the burden away, but he strengthens us to carry that very heavy burden. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And and so true of my own experience. You cite Kate Bowler's work a Mm -hmm. little bit in your book too. And man, I just love the way she talks about pain and suffering and some of the platitudes that Mm -hmm. our culture puts up against grief and hard things. And she's kind of like knocks those down with intellect and humor. You do that as well. But I just, it's such a comfort I've said this a couple of times to people who are listening to the podcast are like, how many times is she going to tell this story? I once went to a training, a continuing education class at a clinic here in Tulsa called the Grief Center. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about cultural grief, Mm -hmm. particularly with children. And they used this phrase. They said, we live in a death denying culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how, you know, when grandma died back in the day, her body sat on the table in the kitchen 
And there was no question about what had happened because her dead body was right there for the children to see. It was concrete. And so one of my takeaways is like, man, I don't want to raise my kids that way. I want to teach my kids that this stinks. It is the death is the worst thing ever, Yeah, but it's not the end. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we can have hope. So yeah, it's interesting. I have a whole chapter in my first book, A Hole in the World, called Death Rooms. If that's not going to make anybody want to buy that book, I don't know what will. <laughs> Go buy a, a book that has a chapter called Death Room. But it's it was that they used to refer to the parlor or the living room as the death room because that was the formal yeah. space where they laid out the bodies of people. And people died a lot more regularly then. You know, like mm-hmm. 1850, the average age of death was like 37 years old. I mean, it was just death wow. was part of life and they couldn't deny it. And so it was in the 1910s and 1920s and 1930s that people started living longer that apparently there was a magazine article that came out and said, let's start calling it the living room. <laughs> so, you know, so anyway, I write about that in the book. I know, right? Isn't it wild? But it's like, we, we just don't have the language. We don't incorporate grief and death and and those stages of life into our everyday vernacular into our homes into our lives and 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 more than that i mean this kind of this is how it kind of bled over into my new book we just tend to think of pain in general as an aberration or suffering as an anomaly because we are the generation of life hacks we are the generation of health and wellness of self-help and so there's this idea that we can kind of circumvent any difficult or uncomfortable experience any failure we can self-help our way to success. We can self-care our way to happiness and comfort. And I just don't believe that anymore. <laughs> I just think mm-hmm. life is hard. And I think there's always going to be suffering and there's always going to be death and there's always going to be illness and we can't fix it. But we've come to believe this awful illusion that we can. And mm-hmm. we've got to constantly speak truth into that, that death is part of life. Suffering is part of life. So much so that God subjected himself to it to show us mm-hmm. the way, to show us how to be human in mm-hmm. those paths of suffering. So yeah, you're speaking my language when you're talking about (laughs) death denying culture. So (laughs) yeah, man. And I am never going to walk into my living room Well, this Uh, scholarship on the architectural history of the American home is a little bit, there's different theories on why it became called the living room, but that is a strong one that I did a lot of research on. So anyway, yeah. I I just drank the Kool-Aid and now I'm going to go tell my husband that we are going to start calling it the death room. The death room. I know. Your kids are going to love it, right? Somewhere, I can't remember where we were, but someone was talking about like their dog dying or something. And they were like apologizing to my husband and I for talking about the dog dying in front of our kids. And my husband was like, it's fine. We talk about death here all the time. <laughs> See, we could, this is why we could be friends. And and you know, it's partly because we've had to, right? Like we, right. you and I yeah. have experienced this profound loss that that has integrated into our life and is part of our life and so like I am my daughter needs to know when we go visit grandma and grandpa we're gonna go see their aunt Rachel's grave and this is what happened and she died and my oldest was a a eight-month-old baby when it happened so she Mm -hmm. was part of that story and so we have we we talk about it we think it's important and it's hard and she asked really good questions that we don't have the answer to (laughs) You know, and mm-hmm. and we always tell it, why did that happen? And when is God going to bring her back to life so we see her again? And we we sometimes say we don't we don't know, but we trust yeah. God. That's how we respond, you know. Yeah, man, we're having those mm. same conversations. So, mm. what's your grief like now, Amanda? Can mm. I ask that? What yeah. wave are you riding right now? <laughs> um, I'm riding the almost punched a a hole in the wall last night just thinking about it I mean you know like Mm -hmm. I'm four and a half years into it and something happened that I wanted to talk to my sister about and I got really angry for about five minutes last night I mean I'm always Mm -hmm. like low-grade angry about it to be honest with you but sometimes I get really have a moment and I I go into a room alone and process that sometimes I talk to my kids when I say "I'm, I'm struggling I'm feeling sad today 
So I don't know. I think I'm I'm always the kind of person that is a student of whatever experience I'm having. I'm a curious person. I, I like to intellectualize things for better or for worse. So I'm always studying in some ways about grief and how it's affecting me. And I'm kind of watching myself and seeing what stage that I'm at, I'm at. But it just, it never goes away. You just learn the skills that are needed to get through those difficult moments, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. One of the, I think I have the quote here, actually. You had talked about <clears throat> God being, a grieving God being a God you can get on board with, basically. Mm-hmm. That's my paraphrase of what you're saying. But you're talking about you know, Jesus on the cross when he was like, God, why have you forsaken me when he's in the garden and he's weeping and sweating blood and that he experienced all of these emotions Mm. modeling, like you said earlier, Mm. modeling those for us. And you said Mm. this, you said, maybe this is an image of God. Some people find hard to bow before or praise, but Mm. for me, a God who grieves is a God I'm more willing to trust. (sighs) Yeah. So beautiful. So good. Yeah. So Thanks. Good. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's this, the thing about the story of Christianity that keeps me coming back is that it is, it dignifies our sorrow. It doesn't um, glorify it, but it dignifies it. Um, God's humble choice to become human, not just to bear our sin, but to bear our sorrow. That's an important part of the story that he became fully human and subjected himself to all the griefs. His cousin and maybe best friend was murdered. He Mm -hmm. likely experienced poverty as a child. He was part of the colonized Roman Empire, like a marginalized people group that were experiencing Mm -hmm. oppression. He walked through all of that. He was despised. He was rejected. All of those pains he decided to... He, You know, he could have come as a human being and lived a very easy life of accolades and affluence but he decided instead to to live a life of poverty and I think that that's a really generous choice on the part of our God to tell Mm -hmm. the story of his love that way by experiencing what we experience and carrying it for us and I have a hard time walking away. I mean, I've had my doubts about my faith and I've had, but I have a hard time walking away from a religion where that's the thread line. You know what I mean? That's right. feels really powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a God who knows, mm-hmm. who knows us, who sees, yeah. who sees and understands. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you how you go from writing a book about grief having more kids, living a little bit more life, to now writing this book, Holy Unhappiness. So when you look at your story, what happened between those two experiences? Mm. Well, it's really interesting. If you talk about looking back and the importance of remembering, like the story of this book that I just released, Holy Unhappiness, it's actually the first book I ever started writing. I actually started Mm. writing this book conceptualizing it before all those difficult things happened. It was actually a, a, a book idea that I was working on with my sister, who, if, if your listeners don't know, she was a, a, a well-loved and much-beloved Christian author, Rachel Held Evans. And so she was working with me on this book. And then obviously everything got interrupted and... I really didn't know how to continue it without her. And of course, now I suddenly had this education on suffering that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. I think the book prior to that had, had kind of been about, well, how do you handle discontent in a life that on paper looks very blessed? You know, because on paper, mm-hmm. my life really did look very blessed. And it still does. Let me be very clear. There's so much good in my life that I'm so thankful for. But now all of a sudden I had kind of was rounding out some of these ideas with, okay, and then what do you do when suffering itself doesn't feel the way you thought it would feel? Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad to finally release this book because it it has been stewing in me for six years, six or seven years almost. Um, But, you know, when she died and then COVID happened and I got that, the algorithm sent me that weird article about death rooms and... (laughs) And, you know, Irish keening and covering mirrors and all these strange grief rituals. And I started journaling. It just felt like COVID 
the, the time we were in with COVID-19, that book was maybe more needed. And as we were going through this communal grief. And so I wrote mm-hmm. that book and, and this book, it was really a two book contract that I signed and with the hope that I'd be able to finish that first book up and release its second. But let me tell you, it was actually harder to write in many ways because it's hard to say what I was trying to say. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it was, it's, it's a more nebulous concept. I think with, with a hole in the world, it's like, here's this strange ritual. Here's this interesting practice. Here's how it helped me process my grief. And you keep moving forward through that. With this book, I felt like I was trying to make a kind of stronger thesis statement that God doesn't always make us happy. God's not always here to fix our difficult emotions. And that actually feels like a pretty heavy thesis that needed more support. And the the, the journey of trying to explain that and then say, okay, well then what does God do for us was actually really difficult to wrestle to the ground. And I changed my mind on a lot of things halfway through the process. You know what I mean? I changed my mind on what I thought blessing even was halfway through writing the book. So I wrote every (laughs) chapter like six times over the course of five or six years you know what I mean and so Mm -hmm. what you have actually in your hands Emily I feel like in some ways is still a rough draft you know I I feel (laughs) like I'm still writing this book what does it mean to be happy what does it mean what does the goodness of God even look like in our lives who is God to us what how does he meet our emotions and fashion our emotions I'm still working on that you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. what you have is a point in time and kind of where I've landed and who I am and what I think God is and what my relationship with God is. But I'm sure my thoughts on this will continue to evolve. You know what I mean? Like, gosh, if there's ever a second edition, I don't even want to think about the edits (laughs) I want to put in that. But... Maybe not. Don't think about that right now. Yeah, we're not Um, going to do that. We're one day at a time, but you know. Well, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about the structure of the book. I'm like literally holding it in my hand right now. And the tagline is God, goodness, and the myth of the blessed life. And then the way you have it structured is really easy to digest though. I'm glad to hear that. My my unsolicited feedback, but because I was telling my friend on the walk about it actually this morning of like how you've you demystify or kind of tackle these big topics like work and calling and church and these big themes for people who, if they've been walking, walking in faith or following God for any amount of time, I think will resonate with what you have to say about Mm -hmm. it, particularly if they grew up, you know, in the nineties and the early two thousands in the church Ah. and you are, you're looking at a youth group graduate. Um, oh, that's us. That's right. That's right. But you end each section, it says a blessing, but you talk about delight and humility and hope as as true blessings from God and that they're they're complicated mm-hmm. and beautiful and so much better mm-hmm. than the things that we try to say are blessings from God. Yeah. That what God gives us is actually so much better. And that's what I really hoped. That what I wanted was almost like a series of essays of all these components of our life that we have expectations about. Like these expectations we even cultivate within our Christian circles about what is marriage going to feel like? What is parenting going to feel like? What's work and ministry going to feel like? What's church going to feel like? And the big one for me, what is suffering going to feel like? Mm -hmm. And just Mm -hmm. kind of addressing where some of those expectations came from. Some, there's some history. I'm, I'm a history nerd. So you'll find history in there a little bit and, and some social evaluation and like where did we get some of these messages and why do we have some of these expectations why do we think of these things as blessings and how Mm -hmm. do we kind of deconstruct and reconstruct what what blessing is in light of the fact that you know we we have a lot of delusions about what happiness really is and you do a good job of also looking at then what does scripture say about it Mm -hmm. and where have we allowed context to maybe dilute what scripture really had Mm -hmm. to say about it Mm -hmm. and you do a really great job of that too so thank you what do you hope people will do with this you know it's and I mean that not in like the what do you hope people will do with your book will they form small groups and discuss (laughs) which honestly they really could this would be a great tool for that but I mean like when you put your creative work out in the world and you think okay 
people I don't know are reading my words mm-hmm. and making judgments about what I have to say and perhaps who I am and what this all Whoa, means. Yeah, it's scary. It's a lot. It, yes. So my question is, what do you hope for those mystery people that are out there looking at your work and thinking about it? What do you want for them? Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I always think stay on mission as a writer. We talk about that a lot in the aid world. It's like, you got to stay on mission. You got to figure out what it is you're going to do in that disaster zone and stay on that mission or else you're going to go in a million different directions. And you have to do that as a writer too. What's your mission? If your mission is fame or accolades or getting on this list or that list, then that's not sustainable. You have to have a clear mission for the people you're trying to reach with every book. And I felt like my mission for this book, what I wanted people to know is that there is holiness in their unhappiness. I think we tend to think of positive emotions, good vibes, positive feelings as somehow an indication of our holiness and of God's blessing. And I think what I want to impart to people is that there is sacred work. I mean, you have to look at what the word holiness means. A lot of times what it means is set aside for a sacred purpose. There is sacred purpose in your pain. There's dignity in your pain. Being in pain, being in grief, being in sorrow, that is not an indication of a lack of holiness on your part. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person, that you've got bad theology all the time. It doesn't mean you don't love God enough. Sometimes it just means that you're human living in the aftermath of the fall. And that is actually a holy reminder that you were made for a perfect world, for a perfect Mm -hmm. God, and that that relationship has been broken by sin. And so I, I think what I want people to know is that let's not always pretend that we're happy so that we look holy. Let's not shove down the difficult emotions, shove down the grief. We don't just have to tell the victory stories. We can tell the stories of defeat. We can tell the stories of pain, of restlessness, of longing, and that God's going to be present with us there. That's my mission is to normalize the experience of pain in the Christian life. And that's what I hope people walk away from. And I hope that that actually ends up leading people to stay present in their lives. What I really want is for people to read my book and say, okay, I can be present in this pain. If Mm -hmm. the ministry is difficult, yep, you got to use wisdom discernment. Maybe it's time to leave. Maybe it's time to quit, do something different. But don't quit just because it's hard. If you have a moment of difficulty in marriage, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not I'm not talking about that. I, what I'm talking about is just the, the relational discomfort of living a life that's committed to another human being. Mm-hmm. When that becomes difficult, don't jump ship just because it's hard. It, difficult is normal. Mm-hmm. Pain in relationships is part of the process. Don't vacate your experience of grief. Don't numb. Don't, don't mm-hmm. ignore it. Don't shove it down. Don't try to rewrite the story with the pen of redemption too quickly. That's what I'm mm-hmm. trying to say. Stay present for the pain. Stay present in your life. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's a failure. Just because it's mm-hmm. difficult doesn't mean you've made some bad choice. That's what I want to encourage people to do. You said, <clears throat> I'm just so much was resonating with me, but you said hope sings at a vastly different frequency than optimism. Mm -hmm. And then later in that paragraph, I'm going to hold on to this quote, but you said hope instead tells the whole story. Mm -hmm. And man, the whole story is so much more beautiful. When I think about my own experience and when I think about remembering and looking backward, I think I would never have written it this way. Mm. There's so many things that I wouldn't have written into the story. And And yet somehow I'm still tethered to this hope Mm -hmm. that doesn't really make a lot of sense from the outside in. (laughs) Yeah. Well, am I allowed to ask you a question as the podcast host? You chose the word that we have this hope, this hope. You use the word hope in the title of this. Why is that such an important thread line for you? Mm. Because it's not shallow. Mm. And I think you, you hit on this a lot, but I, I think it, you know, obviously that passage comes from Hebrews of we have this hope mm-hmm. as an anchor for our souls. Oh, yeah. And that's really what my experience with coming out of grief and not coming out of just being further along yeah. In, yeah. in the journey of grief is where I landed that the things that I thought really anchored me mm-hmm. were really things that I had created myself, mm-hmm. like, you know, 
stable, a stable life. I followed the script. Yeah. I made good choices. I liked church. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, I had done all the like air quotes, right things, but yet I could not handle my own pain. And yeah. so what really it's the, it, it is the resurrection of Jesus. That was the hope that picked mm-hmm. me up off the floor. And that held true even when everything else in my life was untrue anymore. Yeah. If that makes sense. It so. makes total. I mean, hearing you say that, it's like, this is what's on loop in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> we have the same yeah. brain in some yeah. ways, which I'm sorry for you if that's the case, because <laughs> not everything happened in this brain is easy sometimes. But yeah, it's true. And I love that you use the word hope, because I think sometimes we, yeah, when we, it's not shallow, just like you said. I think I used to think of hope as, as more like optimism and positivity. And now I think of it as like holding both things in tension. Hope Mm -hmm. names the pain. Hope says this is not how it should be, but we look forward to what it, what Mm -hmm. should be, what will be in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why I think hope is such a, it's such a more important concept than optimism or positivity. It says, no, this is really hard. Mm -hmm. And, and yet, and God, yet, yes, there's an Audrey Assad song mm-hmm. called Death Be Not Proud. And it's mm-hmm. just it's a song that's from a poem. Yeah, but it is truly like a, an anthem for my life. I just love the way it says death be not proud. You will not kill me. Mm-hmm. And that's the hope I have is yeah. that this is not the end that even death will die. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. love that. So. Okay. I want to ask so when you look back at your story, what's true about Amanda mm. now, right now? What have you learned about yourself through this process on a personal level? Yeah. Oh, that we all have a million ways of coping with our pain and that we never conquer grief. We never conquer our own demons to some degree. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We never arrive at this place where I think we can say we're fully whole and we've fully learned everything that there is to learn. And so while I can say I'm many miles down the road from that person who lost her sister, from that person who is at rock bottom, I still have a long way to go. I like that's such a cheesy thing that people say. <laughs> it's such a cliche. I have a long way to go. But I think something Hannah Anderson has said recently, and my therapist, so two good people there, just say, like, you are not God. You are a human being. You're not a worm. You're a human being. And so accepting that it's okay for me to not be okay still. I wrote the book on grief. Like, I wrote a book about coping with unhappiness. I'm still mad sometimes that mm-hmm. I'm not happier. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. still mad sometimes that my uncomfortable feelings haven't gone away. I'm still confused sometimes about what God's presence looks like in my life. And mm-hmm. and that's okay. I'm a person who wants to get to the end of the story immediately. I'm the person who wants to have arrived at my best self, living my best life now. <laughs> I want it now. Mm-hmm. And just learning that I still have a lot of healing to do and that mm-hmm. that that's okay. The great thing about writing a book is that you get to invite a lot of other people onto that journey with you. And now I get to be surrounded by other people who write me and are resonating with what I'm saying and who've read my story and who share their stories. And that feels really comforting, you know? Yeah. 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 There's something about telling our story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. powerful. All right. Well, as we sort of close out, I like to ask people what they're learning, but like what they're learning in a fun way, Mm. not a like, so, you know, at the end of a podcast, I feel like it's cheesy to be like, what's something you're reading now? Or, or a lot of people do that. And I like it. I'm just, my take on it is what's something that you're learning right now. That's fun for you. Uh, (laughs) I am learning that I love to cook. (laughs) And I'll tell you why that matters to me is I guess I always kind of like fancied myself like this liberated woman. And I had these (laughs) ideas that like, if I'm a liberated woman, I can't spend time in the kitchen. (laughs) 
But I'm learning that there's something really important about being in your body and part of being in your body is feeding your body. I've had a, I've had, maybe I'll write a book about this sometime, but I've had a kind of disordered relationship with food over the years and with my body and just learning A, to nourish my body in order to nourish my soul and then to take delight in the experience of food and eating that's been a healing journey for me. And so I'm actually having a blast. <laughs> I love learning new recipes. I love learning local Appalachian recipes cool. made with local food. I love learning the history of the food in this region. I love learning, yeah, new ways of cooking and trying new things and failing at things. And so I made a, a new dish for the first time last night that turned out spectacularly. And Ooh. I'm about to go eat the leftovers. And I'm just really... I'm. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm loving that. I'm loving learning kind of that new hobby and the healing that's coming from that. So that's inspiring me because I don't like to cook at all. Yeah. I'm really I want I want to like it. So yeah. maybe that's the it's first not step. for everyone. <laughs> but I'm finding and it's also like for me. <laughs> You can include this or not include this, but part of it is like my husband gets home and I'm like, my kids have been talking my ear off all day as little girls do. And I'm like, I got to go to the kitchen. I got to go chop about Mm -hmm. 5 million vegetables and it's going to take me a solid hour. Yeah. Yeah. This stew is going to have to simmer for a while. And I'll be in there away from Uh you all the whole time monitoring. Oh, oh, I get that. I get that. Yeah. That's what keeps me cooking dinner for people. Exactly. Exactly. So it's it's a win-win for everyone. They like to play together. I go to the kitchen. I do my thing. I learn a recipe and it's been great. So, well, Amanda, I have thoroughly enjoyed this and I am blessed to have gotten to know you and I just used the word blessed hey I I can't tell you the number of people now that are like did I just did I use that word right do you think Amanda I'm like listen I'm not the authority but I think to say like the beauty of friendship the beauty of connection through our shared stories and through Christ like oh if that's not a blessing I don't know what is Friends, thanks for tuning in. If you would like to hear more from Amanda, to look at some of her work, to buy her book, you totally should. You can follow the link in the show notes that I'll put out. Um, Her two books are Holy Unhappiness and A Hole in the World. They're available on Amazon or other places that you buy your books. She also, I want to tell you, has a cool limited series podcast where each episode goes along with a chapter of Holy Unhappiness. So that would be a really cool companion to the book. It's I've already like texted episodes of that to friends who have then subsequently bought that book and the book of the person she was interviewing. It's really beautiful and it's a really great resource. So with that, we are about to enter fall break over here in my world and then we'll be back after the break with more in our spaces we occupy series and another interview coming out late this fall hope you have a great week and i'll see you next time